Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. Today we're going to take a leisurely trip to Taiwan's premier beach resort. We're heading down from my hometown of Kaohsiung to Kending at the southern end of Taiwan. Kending is a national park, most famous for several beaches, and includes the southernmost point, Cape Ulanbi, upon which stands an iconic black and white lighthouse. So, from my home in Kaohsiung, Kending is about 110 kilometers, so you can get there in under two hours or so. But the trip we're taking today won't be quite so quick as we are in the year 1875, and we're in the company of a special expedition to Olambi. We're traveling with an English assistant engineer called Michael Beasley, who is on his way to Kending as part of an expedition to help select a site for the lighthouse and buy the land from the local Aborigines. And a lighthouse is badly needed. The rocky southern tip of Taiwan was once a graveyard for ships. A large number of foreign vessels were shipwrecked, cargo and crews lost to the waves, and often survivors who made it to shore were robbed, held hostage, or killed. And some of these killings of foreigners led to diplomatic incidents. Western governments pressured the Chinese into building a lighthouse at Ulanbi at the southern tip of Taiwan. And it was in the interests of the Chinese themselves. This lighthouse project was undertaken by the Chinese Imperial Maritime Customs, a body set up to control the treaty ports. It was paid for and in service to the Chinese government, but mostly staffed by Britons and other Europeans. So who is this Mr. Beasley traveling with? The survey party totaled 41 and included Beasley and two senior colleagues from the the customs service, a Mandarin, that is a Chinese government official, a translator, a cook, Beasley's boy, 22 chair coolies, and eight porters. The Europeans and Chinese officials were carried in sedan chairs but had to get out and walk in the more difficult stretches. They're going from the port of Kaohsiung down to Kending, but going over land. Um, why, why not go by ship? The sea route was considered too dangerous. No harbors in which to seek safety if you're blowing landward in a storm. Yeah, it really highlights just how much the lighthouse was needed, doesn't it? Yeah, but there wasn't a road yet either, so overland isn't exactly easy. No, it wasn't. The route took him and the others over dirt tracks, ox cart roads, across rivers, along beaches, through farmland and forest. And to make matters worse, they did the trip in June, a difficult and unhealthy time of the year in which to travel because of the summer heat, drenching rain, and disease. So we're in the company of assistant engineer Michael Beasley, but he's part of the expedition, not the leader. The expedition was led by a Mr. Brown, the commissioner of customs at Takao, or Kaohsiung today, 
and a Mr. Hastings, assistant examiner of customs, who would go on to oversee the building of the lighthouse. We're focusing on Beasley because we're drawing on his written account of this trip. Yes, he gave a presentation before the Royal Geographical Society in London in 1884, and the account was published the following year. So this Beasley, he was a civil engineer from Bath in England. He had worked on railways in India and lighthouses in England. When he joined the Chinese Imperial Maritime Customs, the Works Department, it was in January of 1875. Uh, He was in his early 40s, was married, and I think he had four children. The expedition left Takao early in the morning of June 18th in six native-covered chairs, surprisingly without a military escort, just, quote, one soldier attending on the Mandarin, end quote. And Beasley says, quote, he was armed with nothing more formidable than an umbrella, end quote. But the expedition will be meeting Chinese soldiers on their way. The group skirted the lagoon, forming the harbor on the seaside. They're going down the narrow sandbank separating the lagoon from the sea, which was about six miles long. For the first two miles, the pathway was so narrow and winding that they kept to the edge of the bank and the bearers were frequently up to their knees in water. Eric, where are we in terms of modern Kaohsiung? Well, it would be Chijing Island, but back then a narrow peninsula, not an island. At the north was the entrance to Kaohsiung Harbor, and then they built another entrance in the south. Today it's a crowded island, dense buildings everywhere. And in the southern areas, it's a busy port area. Back then, it was a mix of wild and cultivated patches. They tried keeping to the western side, the seaward side, for the sea breeze to alleviate the heat and the easier travel along the beach. But this easier uh, was being relative. It was hard going for the bearers. The beach was black basalt shingle heated by a vertical sun. Painfully hot for guys who are barefoot, so they walked much of the way in the water. In order to rest the men, they halted for a short time under some fine banyan trees at a small fishing hamlet where they, quote, noticed some very good-looking women, end quote. (laughs) Then they pushed on to a much larger place and halted for lunch. Quote, the chairs were placed in the shade of some overhanging bamboos and banyans and a dense crowd soon collected round to see us eat, end quote. Then on again, through a richly cultivated plain of sugarcane and indigo to a village called Ochin, meaning black tree, and they rested there. His account says, this seemed to be a flourishing place, and the people all looked well-to-do. There was a good bazaar and fish market, and the whole place was clean and nice. I must say it's refreshing to get positive descriptions like this. Most foreign accounts from that time emphasize the dirtiness. Yeah. So after they rested a little while and enjoyed some excellent mangoes, onward they went across a barren, sandy plain and some streams. And then they came to the main river. That would be the Gaoping River, which they crossed in a boat and arrived about 5 p.m. at Donggang, or today Pingdong. In Donggang, Beasley spent the night at the house of a merchant The ground floor was occupied by the family, so they stayed in the upper floor, which was used as a go-down. A go-down. You see this unusual word in a lot of old books. 
Yes, goat down is of disputed origins, maybe Indian. It came into English in the 1500s. It means warehouse. Ah, okay, a warehouse, a storage area. Their cook produced a very good dinner using local ingredients, fish, sweet potatoes, and prawn curry. Sounds good. But of course, we have Englishmen here, so they added a British touch. They opened a tin of soup. <laughs> yeah, Beasley describes Donggang as a flourishing place of about six or seven thousand inhabitants and with a large junk trade. Yeah, and these are junks as in Chinese ships, not uh, the recycling business. Beasley counted, he said, 28 junks lying at the bank, either taking in or discharging cargo. One of the exports was pineapples. He calls them sweet, juicy Formosan pineapples. And he says they are exported in vast quantities to Amoy, Hong Kong, and other places. As an aside, most trade in Taiwan was with Fujian, not with other parts of Taiwan or other countries. There weren't any good ports. Even Geelong, Danshui, or Takao couldn't handle big ships. So Amoy, that is Xiamen across the strait in Fujian, was in effect Taiwan's port. Produce was sent in small ships to Xiamen, from where it was transferred elsewhere. Wow, yeah, quite a journey. So let's take Oolong Tea, for example, that's headed to the United States. It would first go the other direction, shipped across to Xiamen. Yes, uh, but getting back to the pineapples, Eric, we have a mystery. Let's see if you can solve it. <laughs> a pineapple mystery. Um, okay. To be more specific, the mystery of the missing pineapple crown. Beasley says the Taiwanese pineapple, quote, has the singular peculiarity of not possessing any crown of leaves. But whether this absence of crown is natural or artificially brought about during the growth of the plant, I have never been able to ascertain. Okay, uh, seems like a pretty easy answer. They, they cut off the crown because it takes up space, and, and it's prickly. Yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, and the crown can be used. You can divide the segments and uh, grow new pineapple plants too. Hmm. So the survey team wanted an early start the second day. In fact... They wanted to start at midnight, but the coolies refused to move so early, and uh, I certainly can't blame them for that. They ended up leaving at a little after half past four by the light of a beautiful moon. There were two boat crossings of rivers, and then the luxury of a good road. But the road headed too far inland, so they headed westward to the coast, a six-mile stretch along a heavy shingle beach, again very tiring to the bearers. And they arrived finally at Fangliao, which is about 40 kilometers, I would say, south of Kaohsiung. Mm -hmm. The expedition rested for a few hours at a nice, clean, airy Yaman. Uh, Yaman is government office. They had lunch and again went along the beach where the shingle was so heavy and fatiguing for the bearers that they needed frequent stops. Yeah, I don't know about these sedan chairs. Um, seems... I don't know, off-putting, having human labor used like this? They go by different names, right? I've heard sedan chairs, chairs, litters, palanquins. But mm -hmm. basically, it's just a chair and a couple of bamboo poles, and then you got two carriers, or for the elite, maybe they had a box, you know, almost like a small little room, and it was carried by four men. Yeah, I wouldn't want to carry myself. <laughs> Okay, uh, the landscape was changing, the plain narrowing, and now the hills were close to the coast. 
they were heading into so-called savage territory, and there were several Chinese army camps, an attempt to subdue the indigenous people. Next to a large army camp of thousands of Chinese troops, they were warmly welcomed by a Mandarin. His name was Zhou, and Beasley describes him in glowing terms. He was intelligent, cheerful, and possessed unflagging energy. He was, quote, a most agreeable traveling companion, end quote. And Beasley writes, to his many accomplishments, he added that of photography, and he showed us some portraits he'd taken of himself. Cool. This is 1875, and he's doing photography as a hobby. That's really early. Western photographers that only at this point, just started taking pictures of Formosa. An unusually sophisticated man, and he's in a tough war zone where the Chinese had been fighting the indigenous people uh, for the last six months uh, since the evacuation of the Japanese. The evacuation of the Japanese. Okay, so that's the Japanese expedition of 1874 when the Japanese invaded and occupied the southern tip and part of the east coast for about half a year supposedly in reaction to the killing of Japanese shipwreck survivors a few years earlier. Yeah, and the Chinese now, they're finally making ground against the indigenous people, uh, which in this southern part of Taiwan, it's the Paiwan people. Several groups of Paiwan uh, had just submitted, and Beasley writes, the very day we arrived, 100 savages had come in to have their heads shaved. That reference to shaving heads is... As we've explained in previous episodes, the Manchu hairstyle of the Qing dynasty rulers, the front of your head was shaved and the hair at the back was worn long in a, in a queue thing. The Chinese authorities were looking to uh, bring matters to a close because cholera and typhus were decimating troop numbers. Beasley gives a total of nearly 1,000 dead and just the day before, one of the generals had died. A thousand dead strikes me as a bit of an exaggeration. A little, yes, but not by that much. Let's say 900 dead or too sick to fight over six months, an average of five men a day. The Japanese, who had fewer troops, lost over 500 men dead to disease during their six-month occupation in the, the area the year before. Mm, easy to forget about the, the devastations of disease. But enough about death, disease, and other misery. Time for a bath in a mountain stream while monkeys and butterflies dance about and then some dinner in the open air at a table lit by lanterns. They ate with this Mr. Zhou, the Mandarin, and another official. And Beasley writes, quote, Joe had recently had a present of some Bass's ale, which was much appreciated. Our brandy also pleased them, but they thought it was too strong. Come morning, and this is day three. They found the hills, came down to the water in Beasley, and the others sometimes got out to walk. The terrain was too steep and tricky for the chair carriers. And one of their rest stops was a place called Hong Kong. <laughs> Excuse me, Hong Kong? Quote, Hong Kong is a very different place from its well-known namesake, being a mere collection of grass huts, end quote. But it had its good points. The women were mostly reclaimed savages, okay, Aborigines living with Chinese. And several that we saw were very handsome. Hmm. Now, we've not quoted all such comments, but 
mentions of good-looking women are a feature of his expedition report, which... Uh, which is odd for a scientific uh, journey, an engineering expedition. Uh, thinking the women are attractive is natural, sure, yeah. Writing it down in a diary, also, okay, I get it. But you'd think, you know, you or an editor would like filter out those parts later on. Yeah, yeah. But you can't blame the poor fellow. It's the tropical heat, you know, of a Formosan summer, the sultry sea air. Mm. Uh, but anyway, yeah, at least his appreciation for natural beauty is wide ranging. After a couple of hours rest in Hong Kong, they proceeded along an exceedingly interesting road. And he says, it struck me as the prettiest part of the whole journey. The pathway lay through a thick jungle composed nearly entirely of Velix Nagundo. It was in full bloom, and the pretty spikes of lavender-colored flowers had a very pleasing effect. Velix Nagundo. I googled that and learned that one of its common names is the Chinese chaste tree. Chaste, you know, C-H-A-S-T-E, as in abstaining from sexual relations. This tree has various medicinal uses and properties, and among them is the suppression of sexual desire, hence the name, the Chinese chaste tree. Wow. Um, Beasley maybe could have um, benefited from chewing on a few of those leaves. Yeah. They spent the night at Chicheng, walled town with gates, the furthest outpost that the Chinese had in this part of Formosa. Because the survey party was heading into wild hill country, they reduced the weight of their luggage and stores, just taking what would be needed for five days. And then they headed east, inland, different from the route we are used to driving down to Kending today. And after a while, they got their first sight of the Pacific Ocean. A beautiful view of the hills of the South Cape too, where a sharp-pointed peak stood out. Beasley says, in honor of the head of their party, he christened it Brown's Peak. Brown's Peak. Okay. Um, it's as distinctive today as back then, but it does have a local name. It's called Da Jian San in Chinese. I think that means a uh, big, big sharp rock or something like that. And we used to climb it all the time back in the day, but it is now illegal to do so. But uh, I, I did it two or three times. It's pretty amazing. Excellent. Uh, in the afternoon, they came to a village a mix of Chinese and Aborigines, where smallpox was raging. They were told that the Aborigines were afraid of smallpox and that they would neither come to the survey party nor allow them to pass through their territory. The chief up in the hills wanted nothing to do with them. And the cook had heard rumors that they might be attacked and murdered during the night. But come morning, they were still alive and they headed south. Their guides informed them that they should leave, but they insisted on a meeting with the chief, a man called, uh, and we're not going to get this right, but um, yeah, Tauk Etok, Tauk Etok. I don't um, know. This, yeah, uh, a chief of uh, indigenous peoples down there at that time, who eventually came out and spoke to the party, though he wasn't really dressed up for the occasion. The reports say he was, he was just wearing a, a blue cloth around his waist. The chief said he didn't want them passing through his country because they might bring smallpox. After much chewing of betel nut, the chief relented. Uh, he said the men could go by way of the seashore so they'd bypass the, uh, the people. He said he would meet them at uh, Erland B. It was tough going. 
uneven ground, thick vegetation, so the chairs and some of the carriers were sent back to wait. The next day was another tough march. The men's nerves on edge as they were followed, and one time surrounded by Aborigines armed with matchlocks and bows and arrows. Turn back now, the Aborigines demanded. The Mandarin, this Mr. Zhou, uh, he, however, talked to them energetically, saying, This work has to be done, and should be done. I am here by the order of heaven and my master, and I intend to proceed. It matters not if you kill me. I am determined to do my duty. Okay, well, I'm not sure how well the interpreter uh, translated that, but the indigenous leaders conversed for a time, and then the eldest chief jumped up and signaled with his hand, which meant massacre them all. No, no, it meant they could go on. Later, uh, the Aborigines again, however, did tell them to leave. They would not allow the men to proceed. So Beasley and the others, they had no choice but to halt for the time being. Beasley says... A panic now seized upon the coolies, and they declared their intention of returning. You can understand the bearers wanting to flee. They're not getting paid much, no promotions uh, or medals involved. Mm, And they're certainly not going to get any mountains named after them or rocky outcroppings or whatever. And on top of that, the mission seems doomed. How do you negotiate to buy land if the owners don't even want you, like, standing on that land? Joe talked to the servants and guides, threatened them with uh, all manner of dreadful punishments, but perhaps the winning argument came from the rain that set in as the evening was fading. The next day, June 24th, they trekked onward through the jungle and emerged on a fine open piece of grassland sloping down gradually to the extremity of the South Cape. Beasley called the spot as beautiful as could be imagined and the turf was more like a well-kept lawn than a wilderness, and they did their surveying very quickly, and it all looked good. The chief, with the difficult-to-pronounce name, made his appearance with eight of his men, and they all returned north to a village together to finalize the deal. Mr. Brown discussed the price for a large piece of land at the southern end of the peninsula. Uh, He bartered it down from a starting price of $300 to $100. Okay, what dollars are we talking about here? Uh, That would be uh, Mexican silver dollars. Ah, so the next day the documents were signed, the 100 Mexican silver dollars paid, and Mr. Brown handed out some beads and red cloth to the men and women. All being satisfactorily settled, they began on the return journey. Not long after, though, they heard shots fired back in the village. The chiefs of a hostile tribe, who, having heard that money was being paid out, had come to demand compensation for some stolen cattle. Wow. The return journey to Takao, to Kaohsiung, went smoothly, and they arrived back on June 28th, having been away altogether for 11 days. Hmm. A pretty epic journey, but uh, yeah, that would have been interesting to do back in the day. Well, it's time to wrap things up. Um, The lighthouse at Olambi was built, though in the face of continuing local opposition. When Beasley gave his talk to the Royal Geographic Society in 1884, he'd just come from China, leaving the Chinese Imperial Maritime Customs after 10 years of service. Before leaving, though, he had the satisfaction of visiting the lighthouse, which was completed in 1883. Beasley lived a long life, dying in his mid-80s, but there's something of a mystery regarding his time in the Maritime Customs Service. 
Okay. Um, I hope this mystery is better than your um, so-called pineapple mystery. Yes, but not by much. <laughs> okay. Looking at the records for Besley's time in the maritime service, we see he started as an assistant engineer, and 10 years later, he had the same rank, assistant engineer. Now, compare that with the expedition leader, Brown, or Henry Octavius Brown, to be exact. He rose from the rank of fourth-class clerk to the commissioner of customs at Takao within nine years. Hmm, so you're wondering if... uh... Beasley was just really anti-promotion, or um, maybe he had some sort of blemish on his career record. Yes, pure speculation, of course, but perhaps a fondness for the bottle or the sultry native girls? (laughs) Um, I think there's some projection going on uh, here, I think, uh, John. Okay, anyway, there's no more time for mystery, speculation, or projections. We want to wish everybody a happy Chinese New Year. If you prefer Lunar New Year, that's fine with me. We are going to sign off here with our last episode in the Year of the Tiger. So, Xing Nian Kuai Le. Happy Year of the Rabbit.